The Enviro Show with Nancy Richards. Hi there and welcome to The Enviro Show. Greeting up the station as we usually do on a Thursday night. Well, I'm Nancy Richards and the team tonight is Kim Winter and Rob Parkin. So let's get stuck into the lineup for the show tonight, this evening. Once again, we're going to be bringing you some best ofs of the year, interviews that we've really enjoyed. And we're starting off with another one of our favourite conservation icon, icons, and tonight, well, it's a real vintage icon. He's Dr Ian Player, who spent the best part of his life protecting rhinos and so much more, as we'll hear. Then at the other end of the age scale, we'll also hear about the uh, personal philosophy of young environmental activist Ntokozo Mbuli. She's presenter of the popular 50-50 television show. We'll find out what makes her tick and also a little bit about her Hands of Change campaign. And then we're looking slightly further into the distance. We're going to hear once again from a young woman by the name of Miranda Gibson, who spent 14 months at the top of a tree in a forest in Tasmania, drawing attention to the threats uh, of placed to the forest. And that's a campaign called Observatory. And then as part of our series of holiday reads, we're bringing you another green title, and this time it's called Wildflowers of Table Mountain and Silver Mine. Nice. We'll be talking to author Clark, Hugh Clark and photographer Corinne Merry. So stay with us. It's The Enviro Show. The Enviro Show. Well, Dr Ian Player hardly needs any sort of introduction, but he is a very, very well-respected conservationist, both locally and internationally. He's been a conservation icon, I suppose, for many, many decades. Also an environmental educationalist, a sportsman and activist. He was born in 1927 and for years his name has been synonymous with rhinos. And he tells us a wonderful story, a wonderful story about a dream that he had in which a young rhino came and laid his head on his pillow, clearly a cry for help. Well, we spoke to Dr Player earlier and I asked him first where it all began. You know, it's a long, long story, but in essence what happened was that I initiated the Amdenbuzium Gheni Canoe Marathon. And I did the first journey, the pioneering journey, in 1950. And then in 1951, I was challenged to a race by Ernie Pierce and some other men, which I accepted. And that was the beginning of the Amzanduzi Canoe Marathon. And I was working for the aluminium company in Maritzburg. And because I came back late from the race, uh, I got fired. I got dismissed because of that. But fortunately for me, uh, Colonel Vincent, who was the, uh, the secretary of the Natal Parks Board at that time, saw this, and uh, I was advised to go and see him and ask whether I could get a, a job as a game ranger. And I drew in to see him, and I got the job in 19, April 1952. So that's how I started and as I say, that, that dismissal was the best thing that ever happened to me. <laughs> yeah. I walked into the factory the one morning the, the, after coming back from the, from the very first race, during which time I'd got bitten by a snake as well. So I wasn't exactly in the best of, in the best of moods uh, to be told that I was going to be fired. It was, it, was a, it was a big piece in the newspapers, and I had the good fortune of meeting Colonel Vincent, who was the secretary of the Natal Park Sport. And he said that he was prepared to give me a job as a, as a, a relief ranger. It was a job that not many people wanted because it meant that you had to go from station to station and that you weren't in one place at the same time. So I said I would I'd be very, very happy to have it. And that's how I began my career in April 1952. 
as a relief ranger, which then meant that I had to go and relieve men who were sick or who had gone on leave or make a new game reserve. Well, I'm sorry, it all turns out to have been quite a good thing that you were dismissed then, really, in the end. It was Otherwise, a blessing. It was would... a blessing, a huge blessing. Yeah. One of the best things that ever happened to me because it literally changed my life and led me, you know, to meet some really extraordinary people and work with some really extraordinary human beings like McCool and and Nick Steele and Gordon Bailey and John Forrest and, yeah, no. Perhaps it was part of the, the universe's plan, but... What sort of, you say it was a job that not many wanted because you had to move around a lot, but at the time, apart from the availability, what qualifications or what interest did you have in conservation? None whatsoever, nothing. But uh, in the South Oxford was at that time really just, really, really just beginning to expand its staff and the programs and all the rest of it. So, no, I had to learn on the job, as they say. In the 1950s, I suppose there were many challenges. Um, the, the world was in a different sort of condition then. What were the challenges then? What did you learn in those early years? No, well, I mean, there were enormous challenges because every game reserve, with the exception of Kutluri Game Reserve, thanks to Captain Potter, uh, was under threat of depopulation. And Pelosi was under threat, uh, and Dumo Game Reserve was under threat, and Kuti Game Reserve was under threat. So I realized right in the beginning that, you know, these game reserves could go, could be banished with the stroke of a ministerial pen. So I immediately made it my business to, uh, to learn about politics. And so really that my, my career has been, has been a conservation political career more than anything else. Yeah. Getting people to understand the importance, you know, of the game reserves and, of course, one of the things that really led to that understanding was the Wilderness Trails, which I initiated in 1957, and uh, the establishment of the wilderness area and taking people out on foot on wilderness trails, uh, which in turn led to the Wilderness Leadership School, which is still going strongly today, having taken something like 60,000 people out on foot into the parks and uh, being a life-changing experience for them, and but more importantly for the for conservation, it's given them an understanding and has built up a huge wealth of people who are prepared to really do something about the environment. It certainly has, but I'm thinking back then when you first founded it. Did you meet with any opposition? Did people think you were a bit strange to be suggesting such a thing, or was it met as a good idea? No, 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 no. It was tremendous opposition to it. Tremendous opposition. And and understandably, I mean, the parks were reliant upon uh, people coming in. Uh, and uh, there I was coming along and saying, I want to take half of them for those game reserves, ban all motor cars, and only allow people to go in on foot. But you see, I had had the experience myself of doing that. And so... I knew the spiritual benefits that came that came from it, but of course the people who were in charge at the time were looking at the economics of it. But subsequently, of course, it has been proved, as indeed it did with the Operation Rhino, which was also opposed, that economically 
It was correct. As you mentioned the Operation Rhino, I think that you did a, a huge favour to the rhino, um, but not only through Operation Rhino, but also through breeding colonies of white rhinos. Yes. Yeah, well, that again, there's a book, uh, a biography that has just been written by Graham Linscott, which is going to be, uh, be on sale any day now. It's called uh, Into the River of Life which is a biography that Graham has written. Uh, and in there is the story of, you know, the battle to get the wilderness trails going and also to, to establish op- Operation Rhino. Talking of rhinos, it must break your heart to see what's happening now in terms of poaching. No, it's been terrible. It's been one of the most distressing times of my life. I can't, I can't tell you how bad it's, how much I've been affected by it. Because, and I, I keep repeating the story, you know, that by 2007, I thought that I could say that I had done my best for the rhino in, in South Africa because in 1953, I did the very first aerial count with uh, my colleague Hendrik von Skua, and there were only 437 at that time. And from that 437, the numbers by 2007 had risen to about 19,000, which is a long story in itself as to how that happened. But, uh, you know, I really felt that I could say that I'd done my best and I'd established them, you know, put them back in the crew of Park where they hadn't been, sent them overseas, and in fact had gone overseas myself on, on selling trips and sold them in groups of 20 to Whipsnade in London and to San Diego. So I felt that I really had done everything that I possibly could. And then the killing started and uh, and just grew progressively worse. But as I was saying, thanks to Lawrence von der Post, I got interested in the work of C.G. Jung, the great psychiatrist who, of course, built his whole life around the importance of dreams. And then there I was saying to myself, well, I've done my best for the rhino. I can't do any more. I'm going to quit and quit now. And then I had a dream. I had a dream of a young white rhino coming along and climbing up onto my bed and putting its head on my shoulder. Well, you didn't have to be a psychiatrist to be able to interpret that dream. I just realized that. I still had to be involved, and so I have remained involved and done my very best to bring attention worldwide to what is happening. And um, I'm just very delighted uh, yesterday to hear that the minister had now agreed that it would be that they would go to scientists with a proposal for legalizing the right on because I think that is an extremely important step. Do you think that that will help save the rhino ultimately? Well, I, I believe it's going to be a major, a major contributor, yes. I mean, one can't stop what is going on now and, and which you know, authorities are doing with the best possible way that they can in the Kruger Park and here and KwaZulu-Natal and elsewhere in the, in the protection on the ground. You can't stop that. That's, that's critical. That's going to have to go on forever. But by putting a value on the horn, and we're sitting with so much that that money 
if that money goes into conservation and, and helping local communities, it will go a long way. Not only to the, not only because of the rhino, but because of the parks. I mean, people will appreciate the parks more. You mentioned right at the beginning that you know there's been a sort of a political element to your conservation career. Do you yes. think that conservation will always be a political issue? Yes, it will. It will. As I say, in the beginning, you know, the, the, in, the, in the very early days, people wanted to deep reclaim places like Amphalosi and Ndumo and Mkusi. And it was a hell of a battle to stop it. And there I've got to give full marks to the South African press, because without their, without their involvement, we would never have achieved it. As you see things now, you know, uh, populations are growing, the animal, uh, so many of our animal populations are very threatened. Do you feel optimistic? Do you feel that conservation is in good hands and that everybody's on board with it? Uh, look, you know, in, in, I keep on telling people that in my day, we had wonderful people, but it wasn't perfect. There were a lot of imperfections. So today, there are also imperfections. But I believe that by far the great majority of people who are involved in, in wildlife conservation are doing it because they believe in it, because it is a passion, and um, because they know that it's, it's something for the next generation. Yes, indeed. I just want to come back to Lawrence van der Post, who I believe that you read one of his books called Venture to the Interior. And you talked earlier about the spiritual benefit that you had had, which is one yes. of the reasons why you started the, the wilderness training. Has that, has that stayed with you? I mean, do you still feel that? And, and can you explain how it felt? Well, the book was, the actual title of the book is uh, Journey to the Interior. But what it did, what it, what it told me, was that, you know, that there was a, a spiritual aspect of Africa. And that came to me at a very uh, opportune time. Uh, as Lawrence von Apost himself said, you do not find the book, the book finds you. Was very true. And because I was stationed at Ndumo Game Reserve at that time, and I had by then had over two years' service uh, working in the field. But I always felt there was something missing that I didn't understand. The, in my work was having an impact which I didn't quite understand, uh, an impact upon myself. But then having read from the post book, I knew that it, what he was talking about, that it was a spiritual impact, and that that is what led me to start the business leadership school eventually, was to bring about an understanding for people to understand that Going into the wilderness was, in fact, a spiritual experience, was a religious experience, and it was to begin with, it was laughed off. Um, people didn't want to believe what I was saying. Uh, they thought of, they thought that I was making a joke, and I had people ask me what kind of spirit was I talking about, vodka or gin or whiskey. But when I was very, very young, uh, ten years old, I had to keep watch uh, in the crypt chapel of St John's College at Easter over the body of Christ. And that was my very first religious experience. So that on the trail, that's the first thing, and it still happens to do this very day, make people sit at the fire alone at night, because that is when you have a realization that there are things much bigger than, than the human being. Yeah. There are indeed. 
Lastly, your career has spanned many years. You've seen many creatures. You've seen much come and much go. You've seen good things. You've seen bad things. For you personally, what has been the highlight and what has been the low light? Uh, well, the highlights, of course, are the wilderness, the wilderness, the setting aside of the first wilderness area in Africa, which was Umphalozi Game Reserve, and then seeing it followed by the wilderness trails. First of all, with the actually the very first trails were with the Wilderness Leadership School, which had been established, but then the Natal Parksford, and then trails in the Kruger National Park, uh, which enabled ordinary people to have the same sort of experience that we home rangers had, and uh, to walk in amongst the animals, and to sleep out at night incredible, under this incredible blaze of Southern African stars, and to have a, what can only be described as a spiritual or a religious, a religious um, experience. And one must realize that, one must appreciate, one must understand that all the great founders of all the great religions found them in the wilderness. Jesus Christ did these 40 days and 40 nights, Muhammad and Buddha, all of them had wilderness experiences. That was the beginning of the, of, of, of the religions. And then the Operation Rhino, of course, was uh, was a very hard, was a, an enormously hard battle, a terribly hard battle. But when one has worked with those, particularly the, the White Rhino, which is a gentle, inoffensive beast, and walked in amongst them and really grown to love them, you know, to have been able to be the person who, you know, led this magnificent team of men of Nick Steele and McCorm and Dombella and Gordon Bailey and John Forrest and others, John Clark in particular, uh, and to re-establish them in the Kruger Park and, and all over Southern Africa, uh, where they had been wiped out, uh, was a tremendous experience. It really, uh, really made me feel that my life had been worthwhile, yeah. Dr. Ian Player, well, an icon indeed, and an extremely worthwhile life lived. In fact, I heard him speak at the uh, SA Brewery's Environmental Media Awards where he told some very, very moving stories. And if you'd like to know more about him, you can read his biography recently released. It's called Into the River of Life, and that was written by Graham Linscott. In fact, talking of books, don't forget we're going to be bringing you some entertaining green reads over the next couple of weeks. And later on in the show tonight, we're going to be hearing about a book of wildflowers. Let the music play. Do you have a musical appetite as wide as the world? Send in your favorite top five songs and have them played on air. It can be anything you want, from romantic artists to sounds of nostalgia. Email us your top five list now. Top five at safm.co.za. Then join me, Naledi Mulo, on SAFM 12 to 1 p.m. from the 23rd of December. completely the other end of the age scale from Dr. Ian Player is another conservationist at heart. She's Ntokozo Mbuli. She's presenter with 5050 and for her, interestingly, Sir David Attenborough, internationally renowned wildlife specialist, has been a real inspiration. Ntokozo was also one of the Mail and Guardian's Greening the Future Future Leader Award winners, so well done to her. Well, we spoke to her earlier to find out a little bit about her Hands of Change campaign, but first to find out more about herself. 
I'm a TV producer and I work, I've been working behind the scenes before I joined 5050 for quite some time. After I had worked for Endemol UK um, as a production manager, I started working on 5050 more on the television production side and not so much presenting for them until they needed somebody to do their book reviews. And I started getting into presenting that and then uh, got into the field. But the more time I spent with the 50-50 people and the more time I spent in the field and the more I got to know about the environment and the more books I had to read to review, the more my interest for conservation and the environment increased. And the more I learned, the more I wanted to know. And I just the passion just grew and grew from there. Yes, it's interesting because I was going to say that the thing about television, it's not known for its sort of green tendencies with the exception of your program and, you know, a number of other programs. It's, yeah. you know, television is quite a sort of carbon heavy medium altogether, I suppose, you know, with all yeah. the sort of. So it's quite it's quite interesting that you fell into this and it sounds like you were then, as it were, self-educated on it. Not quite self-educated because one of the, the joys of uh, 50-50 is that a lot of the people that work on the television show are actually experts because mm. um, I'm currently also the series producer of 5050 Now. And most of the team is made up of people who are not necessarily television professionals, but are professionals in various conservation, science and environment related fields. You know, I learned a lot from those people, even outside of the shoot, the conversations that were had, cups of coffees at dinners. Even when I give my environmental talks in schools, I make use of all the people that, the team of people that I work with that are experts in all areas of the environment. And also the experts that we make use of as a production, like Dr. Anthony Turton on water-related issues, I've often called him for advice or, you know, to help me with some of the things that I want to understand about the about water and our water crisis, and passing that information on, especially to young people, and especially to young people that come from um, socio-economic states that need a lot of growth. That's where my particular passion lies. Yeah, I think one of the professionals that you came across, I think, influenced you greatly was Jane Goodall. And Jane Goodall as well. Jane Goodall is my hero because it was. During one of her visits to South Africa, and I had to interview her, and I was very nervous because I had never interviewed somebody of such a caliber before. So I made sure I read up a lot about her, and I watched a lot of films that were about her and about the work that she does. And even before I met her, she you know, started inspiring me. And when I spoke to her, some of the things that she said and the authenticity um, that came with that was really... It made me think that, you know, that's the kind of person that I want to become. I want to make a change, not so much for the recognition, but to be able to influence, you know, bigger changes and see that the work of my hands and, you know, the work, me putting the things that I, I'm passionate about and the things that I think about into practice and influencing other people to do the same and pay it forward must be such a rewarding experience. And with Jane Goodall to see all the work that she has done before meeting this one person who is just this such a humble and authentic and real person who is not about what people think of her or about getting the recognition. Mm -hmm. She really has a deep-rooted passion for the environment. That was really special. That was really special for me. Yeah, really humbling to meet somebody like that and to yeah. exchange with them. 
That's, in fact, we're hoping to talk to uh, Jane Goodall. I'm hoping that she's going to be one of our conservation icons here on the programme in the not-too-distant future. But um, looking at you as an icon, and certainly as a role model, I think what you've started is uh, a campaign called Allow Your Hands. Tell us about it. You know, this campaign is actually, it's still in its early days because there's bigger things to come. But I play the piano. I started learning to play the piano in 2011. And I remember when I went for my first lesson with my music teacher, I just thought I would listen to a lot of music and, and I think, oh, there's no way I'd be able to play this. Because he, he asked me, you know, what are your favorite pieces? You know, and, I, and I, I love classical music, so I named quite a number of classical pieces that were my favorites. And he said, you know, eventually you're going to learn to play these. And I thought, no, never. One of the pieces was Moonlight Sonata. And I remember when I did eventually play the piece for him, he said to me, do you remember that this was one of the pieces that you mentioned when you came for the very first lesson and you said you'd never be able to play it? And I said, you know, I'm actually quite amazed at what my hands can do. That caused me to think a little bit more about people tend to underestimate the power of their hands or any other resources that they may have at their disposal because they think they might not have enough to make the big changes that the world requires, you know. And so the message in that is that just allow, let your hands or whatever resources you have, allow them to make the changes that can be changed, you know. Live, live up to your full potential. But it was quite a sweet way of looking at it, and it, it was quite fascinating the way it came to me in, like, a piano lesson. <laughs> yes, yes, it was a, an aha moment. Yeah, and it was it, actually the response that we've had from viewers from the promos because we've got promos on air where it's they start with me playing the piano and then they go into visuals of all these different hands that have helped save a whale or rhino or a plant and a lot of viewers have come back to us and they said you know it's opened their eyes and their minds we've got teachers in schools that say that they want me to come and give talks about this concept of allowing your hands to live up to their full potential because it was just like 30 second promos that had one sentence in them, which was, I'm amazed at what my hands can do. It started with me playing the piano. It went into visuals of all these different people around the country that are using their hands to do great things for conservation. And in that 30 seconds, we've said so much and we've appealed to so many people. It's quite fascinating and it's really, really great. What a wonderful story and what a wonderful thing to pass on. So very simple. And those children that you were talking about earlier were in areas where, as you say, they need to grow, they need to develop. What do you suggest that they do with their hands? I recently went to a discussion on the development of our youth. And one of the things that came up in that discussion was that we make a lot of assumptions about what um, South Africa's youth need to do to better themselves. And some of the most obvious answers are entrepreneurship. And a lot of the time we don't take into account the number of hurdles that they have to get over, South Africa's youth have to get over, to even get to a point where they, they can be entrepreneurs or start yeah. even thinking about entrepreneurs. So when you go to disadvantaged communities especially and you teach children to plant a tree, that'll be a, f- a fruit tree. Or you, 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 know, you teach children how, to, uh, how a vegetable garden, how to sustain a vegetable garden that will feed a family or a community or, you know, whatever. If this family is planting cabbages and the next family is planting butternut and they do food share system. Or if they, some ideas have come up 
where use waste to generate power that they can use in their homes um, in areas where there's no power. Mm. You know? And in that way, it's an environmental solution, but it's a people solution too. And I love those kinds of things where it's, you're taking care of the environment, but you're taking care of people too. Because a question that I'm often asked is, if I don't know where my next meal is coming from, or if I don't have a pair of shoes to walk all those kilometers to school, why should I worry about the rhino being poached? Yeah, sure. And I'm saying that the rhino being poached is not the only environmental issue. You can look at something that will take care of the environment issue, environmental issue in your immediate environment, but will also take care of you. Yeah, absolutely. Gosh, wonderful messages, message, many messages there. You know, I just want to come back to you and playing the piano and the Moonlight Sonata and all the other wonderful pieces that I'm sure you can play now. Somebody once told me, and I'm sure you've put it to the test, that plants really respond very well to music. So if you put a plant on top of your piano, it's going to flourish. That and is the absolute truth. I can mm. tell you that is the absolute truth. I, for many years, have never been able to keep a plant alive. And the 50-50 team have always judged me for that because I would have like plants in my offices and they would die and I don't know why they die. So now I keep my plants in my piano room at home and I haven't killed one since. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure you've given them much pleasure. Yes. <laughs> and I've also given my dog much pleasure. <laughs> Undercozo Mbuli, and definitely a name to watch on the green scene, I'd say. And talking of watching, well, that's exactly what Miranda Gibson did from the very top of a very, very tall tree in a forest in Tasmania. It was a campaign designed to draw attention to the threats to the forest, and uh, the campaign itself is called Observatory. You can incidentally check more on their website, which is uh, observatory.org, observatory.org. But earlier we spoke to Miranda to find out how the 14 months was and what made her do it. Well, I decided to go up the tree because that area of forest in Tasmania was under threat from logging and it was actually an area that was promised protection um, by the Australian government but despite that, um, they continued to log. So I went up the tree on the 14th of December 2011 and I said I'd stay until the forest are protected. And, um, yeah, I ended up staying for over 14 months. Tell me about the tree itself. That's a long time to be in a treetop. What sort of tree was it and how high up was it? Well, it was a eucalypt tree and um, it probably is about 400 years old. And I was right at the top, so that was about 60 metres above the ground. How did you get up there? We do a lot of tree climbing in Tasmania as part of our um, protests. So I was quite um, used to climbing trees and we climb up with um, ropes. Yeah, set, set up a platform up there, um, a wooden platform that was suspended from the um, trunk of the tree with ropes as well. To have stayed up there all that length of time, you would need more than the platform. You'd need something to stop you falling out at night if you were sleeping. You would need somewhere to wash, somewhere to go to the loo, all those things. What sort of facilities did you have? Well, I mean, obviously it was quite basic facilities. I had, um, as I said, I had a, a little uh, uh, platform and I had um, that half of that was covered over with a tarp to keep the weather out. I didn't need something around the edge in case I fell out because I was always attached with my rope in a harness so I never had to worry about falling off the side. And yeah, I just had really basic facilities in terms of cooking, just a little gas stove and in terms of um, washing, I just had, you know, like a little um, bucket of water and um, yeah, just everything quite basic. 
You must have created quite a stir. I mean, did you get people coming to watch you, people coming to interview you? Because the whole point was to raise awareness. Yeah, definitely. The the whole point of doing it was really to get an international spotlight onto what was going on in Tasmania's forest. And it's amazing how far it really went around the world. I had people contacting me from so many countries, still um, getting a lot of people contacting me. And that's really great. And while I was up there, I had a solar panel. I had um, a computer with the internet. Uh, so I was actually able to communicate to people and talk to people about the forest. I did a lot of talks to school groups and to conferences and festivals um, via Skype. Basically did everything I could while I was up there to get the message out and I think it was really successful because so many people did find out about these forests and got on board as part of the campaign. Tell us more about the message that you're spreading and what organisation are you with? I'm with a group called Still Wild, Still Threatened and we're a grassroots volunteer-based group in Tasmania and we advocate for the end of industrial-scale logging of native forests. In Tasmania, we have really outdated practices where they clear-fell large areas of forest, uh, then they subject those areas to a high-intensity burn, which the kinds of forests that grow here in Tasmania have rainforest species in them and these kind of species don't grow back well after fire. So these areas are ancient ecosystems and they're being destroyed by this logging uh, industry. So Still Wild, Still Threatened and other grassroots um, forest groups in Tasmania have been advocating for a change in the industry and for the protection of high conservation value forests and that's the message that I've been spreading through um, this campaign. What's the percentage of forest in Tasmania? How many hectares is it forested and how much is there left? Well, that's right. There uh, is actually, you know, a lot of the original cover of forest is gone. And in particular, when you look at um, old growth forests, there really are um, only remnants uh, left. There's about 1.5 million hectares of forest that's managed by Forestry Tasmania. That means that's 1.5 million hectares that's available for logging. And this is the area of forest that a lot of it is high conservation value. In fact, there's been identified over 500,000 hectares as high conservation value forests and needing protection. This has been verified by independent scientists and recommended to the government that they protect this. And so, you know, we're calling for those forests that are particularly of high conservation value really need to be protected and, you know, taken away from the logging and reserved so that they can be protected for endangered species um, and also for water and for carbon and a whole range of reasons. The actual logging itself, is it being done by a government department or are they private uh, private companies doing it? The forest, as I said, is managed by Forestry Tasmania. That's actually um, a, a branch of the government. It's uh, a government business enterprise. So it's sort of run like a corporation, mm. but it is funded by taxpayers. And that's interesting because it actually runs at a loss. So taxpayers are actually paying for their forests to be cut down through this industry. Then while they manage the forest, the wood then goes to um, companies. And one of the major companies that are driving this logging is a company called Taran. They're from Malaysia. And this has been a really big campaign that we've been running because they actually are selling their products that come out of these forests. 
they're selling them in Japan and they've labelled them as environmentally friendly. Mm. They've said they're coming from plantation. Well, we have documented that they are actually coming from high conservation value forests. And in fact, forestry Tasmania themselves have documented that this is the fact that tar and are, are being supplied wood from high conservation value forests. So they're basically misleading the market about their product and we've been doing a lot of work in trying to spread the message, particularly in Japan where a lot of their wood is going and make customers aware of the truth of where this wood product is actually coming from. I don't know how big you are, it's still wild, still threatened, how much clout you have, but I mean, that is not just misleading, that's blatantly false. Are you able to take this to any sort of legal level? Well, I guess, you know, we, we are a relatively small organisation and as I said, we're 100% volunteer run. So at this stage, uh, are doing what we can in terms of raising public awareness. And I think, you know, we have had a really good response around the world from our campaign. And I think there's a lot of consumers who are really interested in this. We've been running a cyber action for people to be able to contact those companies and, and ask these questions about where the wood's coming from and say that, you know, people don't want to buy products that are coming from native forest destruction. So I guess, you know, it's really important about spreading that message and um, and challenging um, this company because I think, you know, they should not be able to get away with lying in the marketplace and they will continue to get away with that if no one speaks up and that's why I think it's really important to, to do actions like what I've done in order to get that exposure and to show people around the world what's actually going on. What's the alternative to the logging? I mean, you mentioned that some of it's going to products in Malaysia being sold to Japan. What are they actually producing from the logging? And do you see that there's some sort of alternative? Well, a lot of the product that's being produced at the moment is veneer. That's what Taran make, and a lot of it goes to flooring. We also have other furniture products that are coming out of these forests. Previously, the mark our forest was actually in paper and wood chips. Um, however, the wood chip market has dropped away, and there was, you know, a really strong campaign about wood chipping of our forest. There's definitely alternatives, and one of those alternatives is to use the plantations that already exist in Tasmania. Dr. Judith Ajani, who's an um, economist in Australia, did an analysis of our plantation estate and found that. We could actually supply Australia's wood needs um, with the plantations that people have already planted um, across the country. However, instead of using those resources, these companies and the government are continuing to use old growth forests and high conservation value forests. So what we're saying is there needs to be a transition. We don't need to be logging these high conservation value forests. We can actually transition to plantations. We can also, um, you know, reduce the industry and, and change the industry so that they are producing high quality products instead of, you know, mass amounts of, of products without a financial gain. Yeah, it's really about looking for alternatives for the industry and the industry is seeking that themselves because the thing is that they are in crisis and they've admitted this for many years that financially it's not economically viable, the logging industry. And that's what I said as before, taxpayers are actually funding it. Forestry Tasmania run at millions of dollars of a loss. And if there isn't a transition, if there isn't a change, then they're just going to continue to run at a loss. And that means there's really no point in doing it in terms of even economic. So nobody's really winning here, certainly not the planet. What next for you? You've been down, you uh, came down March this year. What is next for you, Miranda? Well, 
Definitely, um, I'm going to keep doing everything I can for the forest. I'm really passionate about it and, um, you know, particularly with my experience in the observatory, an amazing time to connect with the forest. And I guess that really showed me uh, just what it is that we stand to lose if we allow these areas to be logged. So I'm going to keep on campaigning. We've recently had a really amazing win where the World Heritage Committee decided that 170,000 hectares of Tasmania's forest would be World Heritage listed, and that includes the area where the tree is that I sat in for all of those months. So it's really amazing to know that that forest is protected now and you know, an absolutely amazing success from all of the hard work um, that's been put in by so many people. Obviously, there's a lot more forest that still needs protecting. And as I said, there's over half a million hectares of high conservation mm. value forest. Mm. And a lot of that is still under threat. So definitely keep going with the campaign. You must have become very bonded with that particular tree. I imagine you had quite a lot of wildlife come and visit you one way or another. I'm just thinking about if you like Buddha, you know, who just sat and meditated all that time until he lost the use of his legs. Were you able to get any exercise while you were up there? Yeah, well, it was quite a small platform, but I definitely was very conscious of doing, making sure I did daily exercise. Mm. So, and I had this a little kind of stepping machine up there that I was able to use to make sure I kept my legs nice and exercised. And I think that was really important to make sure I stayed healthy because when I was up there, I didn't know how long I'd be up there for. And, you know, it's really important to, to keep doing exercise. Did you have a lot of birds or other creatures visiting you there? Yeah, definitely had a lot of birds. It was really amazing and it was really incredible to be there day in and day out and to be able to witness the patterns of the birds. I had, you know, particular group of honey eaters that would come to my tree every day at a really similar time and I had, and I was able to watch the patterns of other birds. Um, I had a really incredible experience with a wedgetail eagle, um, which is actually an endangered species in Tasmania and um, it came right to the top of my tree and um, circled around my tree and landed in the tree. So, you know, absolutely incredible experiences that, you know, you, you just wouldn't normally get if you if you didn't spend so much time in the forest. So it was really incredible to be able to connect with the wildlife in that way. That was Miranda Gibson, and you can read more about that project, that campaign, on their website, which is www.observatree.org, and that's O B S E R V A tree so it's observatory.org and don't forget you can do your own observations around trees you don't have to climb to the top of one like Miranda just simply look around you see how many or perhaps how few trees there are in your particular surroundings and if there are only a few why don't you consider planting one it's a great thing to do if you're a traveler you can offset your carbon footprint or you can perhaps plant one to commemorate an event a birth a marriage new beginning whatever and in fact on that subject if you find yourself near Robertson why don't you visit the winery Van Luveren, where there is a walk around all the trees that the owners there have planted. That was Jean and uh, Henny Retief, planted many, many over the years, commemorating all sorts of his special events, including one for the inauguration of former President Nelson Mandela. Check their site. It's www.vanluveren.co.za, vanluveren.co.za. And if you'd like to plant a tree or you'd like somebody to help you do it, why don't you check the uh, Food and Trees for Africa website? They're very good at planting trees. It's trees.co.za is their website. Stay tuned. You asked for it and now it's here. SAFM proudly presents the best of the African Connection with Richard Mwamba, the dance edition. 
Dance Yourself Silly in this compilation of the best dance numbers of the African Connects with Richard Wamba. Now available at reputable CD outlets. The Enviro Show. And finally on the show tonight, another green read for the holidays. One that if you find yourself in Cape Town and perhaps up the mountain, you might be glad of. It's called Wildflowers of Table Mountain and Silver Mine. Bit of a group effort, written principally by Hugh Clark, with photographs by Corinne Merry. And we spoke to both of them earlier. Certainly not Hugh's first book, an earlier one on Wildflowers of Table Mountain, was published back in 2007. But with this, they've made some very distinctive changes. But I asked him first if it was the case that many of the flowers in these two areas occurred nowhere else. Oh, yeah, that is, that's absolutely correct. There's a lot of endemics, and um, certainly in the, the two areas, and there, there's endemics there that aren't on, on Table Mountain and vice versa. But the flowers on the two overlap to a large extent, but even so, with 1,500 species up there, you know, it's a lot of flowers in that area. 1,500 species? That's just for Table Mountain. Goodness me. And I imagine that those 1,500, some of them would be very, very minute that most of us would probably not be able to spot. Well, that, that's true because uh, a lot of hikers, and when we wrote this book, uh, we decided what is our aim going to be? And frankly, there are a lot of botanical books, uh, very good ones about on the Table Mountain chain, but they contain, well, 800 is in the one book. And the trouble is that if you're a beginner, and you want to try and find the flowers that you see most often. If you've got a whacking great book like that, no matter how good it is, you have to really search for it. And we initiated some new ideas. For example, one of the things that we did is we said, let's focus on the most common wildflowers there are on Table Mountain and Silver Mine. And how did we do that? Well, Bruce McKenzie, the third author, he and I, for 18 months, Hike Table Mountain, going up the 13 major slopes every month for those 18 months and the adjoining pathway. And we actually recorded all the flowers that we saw so that we got a database and we could see which are the ones we're seeing the most often and which are the ones that we hardly ever see mm. or, or are very minute, as you say, because we ignored the very minute ones because most hikers or mountaineers, or just flower lovers, would tend to walk past the very small ones. Yes, uh, some that you hardly ever see. Well, I'll get to that in just a minute. But what's interesting, and, and what you've just said kind of explains it, as I look through the book, I think how wonderfully thoughtful that they've been categorised in groups of colour, because that's the first thing you see, you know, as a sort of a lay person walking along the mountain. You will see the colour of the flower before you see anything else. Corinne, this is where you come in as a photographer. How long have you been photographing? I'm just thinking this is probably not the first book that you've worked on either. Well, it is the first book to have my name to it, but I did um, contribute a lot of the photographs of Yu's first book, the Table Mountain book, but I have not done a book as such before, so it's been an a interesting experience. But um, as to my flower photography, I took to it seriously when I got my first digital camera in 2004. And uh, I walk the mountain regularly, uh, about five times a week, and with, never without my camera. So I'm always photographing flowers on the mountain. Yes, and I, I can see that you've done a huge amount of work here. And it's not easy photographing flowers, is it? Because at certain times of day, 
it's more difficult than others. Are you a sort of crack of dawn person or, or are you there at all times just to see if you can find them? No, I'm, I'm not a crack of dawn person at all. And you have to sometimes photograph them in the shade and sometimes in the sun and then decide which is better. So it helps to have a companion to make shade for you. Okay, somebody to sort of stand <laughs> over them so you can get it. Uh, absolutely. Hugh, just going back to the colour categorisation, which I think is absolutely lovely because it means that you know exactly where you are. As you say, if you're looking through your book, you can look for the yellow ones and you're going to find it. Are there very many different particular groups of different types of flowers so, so that you would know that there, I know there are different types of grasses, for instance, uh, you know, that you can say, oh, well, that's in the, hmm, group. All, all the, um, the plants that you get there, what, we, what we've given is we've given, which, and this was a new, unique approach, we first of all gave the common names because, you know, common names are not scientific, maybe, because there can sometimes be a number of common names for a plant. The, the scientific names are, are somewhat complex, and we want to reach out to the other, the wilder, not wilder, the wider community. Mm. So that, for example, if you take something like an arum lily, it's fairly easy to say arum lily. But if you had to give the scientific name, which is there, Xantodishka uh, Ethiopica, it's a bit of a mouthful. So we're trying to really make things easy for, for everybody. But what we give is the family name and the species name. So if somebody wants to know what family does it belong to, just by looking you know, at, at the photograph and looking at the description, they can see if it's in the same family. Or a different family. Yeah, and certainly the names of these flowers are going to keep everybody very entertained. I've just opened up this random page and we've got um, the lesser reed pipe, we've got the K cowslip and the hairy stalk bone seed, not to mention the five tooth baboon cabbage. Who dreams up these names? Yeah, you know, where they come from and how they come. And, and some flowers have got, uh, I think the record I've come across is about 13 names for a particular flower. And that's the disadvantage. Because if you, all, you want to share something with somebody else, you need to have a, a common name, and that's where you have to go to the scientific name. But what is happening now is that more and more, there's, the number of names are being reduced, and those that are used more frequently are being used. That makes it easier for everybody. Corinne, just coming back to the digital camera era, I don't know when, you know, perhaps before you were using sort of regular old-fashioned film, which must have been a very expensive job. Have you noticed that there's been... A reduction in the number of flowers. I mean, we've had many fires on the mountain. Uh, are we are we seeing more or fewer flowers? Definitely more because Fainbull mm. thrives after a fire. So as long as your fires are not too often, not too frequent, that's what it needs to regenerate. And there are many species that only flower after a fire. Perhaps the first year after a fire or maybe the first two years and then you won't see them until if the next fire is only 20 years later, you won't see them in between. So after the 2000 fire, the big one over the peninsula, it, it was terrific. We could go out and see superb flowers. Some species we notice, um, even if they're not fire dependent, they are spreading. We are seeing them in more places. And I haven't noticed any, off the top of my head, any that have disappeared while I've been taking over the past, say, 10 years. Well, that's the good news, isn't it? Yes, the yes, it's, it's terrific. And, and you get very excited and you see a flower in an area where it wasn't growing before and it's uh, terrific. Yeah, it's it's yeah. really it's fun to see. 
just so also Hugh, looking at also at the book thoughtfully, you've you've made it very uh, user friendly, very accessible. Gives you the time of year when you're likely to see these things. So I mean, for instance, the uh, here's one I can't pronounce the name. It's the spiny. Aspalathus, is it? Spiny? Aspalathus. Aspalathus, thank you very much. Um, you can see that between August and January. The sticky tarpy, you can see between July and January. Are there some months where things are very fallow? They're absolutely quiet. You're really not going to see anything much other than green. Well, the best months are between August and, and uh, January. Probably those are the best months. And then going right through to sort of February and March. But you, you can see flowers throughout the year. In fact, our colleague, that Bruce McKenzie, he said that even in the winter month, in a month, going out there more than once, he could see over 100 species, which is, which is quite a lot. But an interesting point that you mentioned just there about are species dying out or are they getting less, I think that here's an interesting... I, I came across this just the other day. The English botanist, William Birchall, in the, who in 1811 was wandering along the slopes of Table Mountain, and he collected 105 species in a single mile. And he quotes, even in an unfavorable, you know, the, the richness of the mountain that so many people miss. And this is why we're trying to encourage people to maybe get hold of this book, go up the mountain and easily find things for themselves. It is a, you know, it's a national treasure. Yeah, well, it's a bit of a national treasure. Just the little book, I mean, it's too, it's too divine, really. It makes you want to get out a, a, a paintbrush and start painting them all. Some of them seem to be, you, you've given them d distribution. Some of them are common. Some of them are fairly common. Some of them are... Uh, occasional. Are there any that are, are really exciting ones? If you come across them, it's going to be a real wow moment for you, Corinne. Which have which have been your real finds? Oh, I, I think generally some of the orchid species have been um, very exciting to find. Well, there's the the drip diver, which is blue on page thirty one, diver Longley Cornu, yeah. is very exciting to find, and you find it on wet rock walls on Table yeah. Mountain. And also in Silver Mine, if you know where to look. So I would name that as one of them. Yeah, I've just seen it. But here it is, page 31, the drip dies. It's absolutely magnifico. What about you, Hugh? Have you got a, have you got a favourite or any ones that people should particularly look out for? Strangely enough, I don't have any particular favourites. But, but here's an interesting point. When we did the first book, we actually gave um, a reference to about five places on the mountain where you could find a particular flower. And why we've dropped that for this book is because we actually discovered people just don't go onto the mountain to look for one flower. They go up there for the experience. And if they're not saying, hey, I'm going to go and look for this particular flower today, yeah. they want to go up and the book is there as an aid so that they can say, aha, so that's what this is. Yeah. Yes, that's what this is. Fantastic. You know, we even had a competition earlier on and trying to encourage young, young children to take part in this. You go almost like hunting, you know, kind of a game. That was Hugh Clark and Corinne Merry, and apologies for the poor quality of sound on that. But the book, once again, is called Wildflowers of Table Mountain and Silvermine. It's published by Straight Nature. And we'll be bringing you another green read next week. Next year, in fact. Well, that's it. Thanks very much for the team. Don't forget you can find us on uh, the uh, Facebook page, which is the Enviro Show on SAFM. And if you'd like to rehear anything that you've heard on this particular show, it is podcast, so you can check our site, www.safm.co.za. Thanks, team. Kim Winter and Rob Parkin. I'm Nancy Richardson. Right here on SAFM, next up, news and music.